Well, that was our perfect storm. I picked a bonehead hymn, and our pianist couldn't make it today, Michael Varner. So, and Robert was going, what's this? <laughs> yeah, it is a great hymn. It's a John Newton hymn. It'll probably come back to us, and Michael Varner can take us through it one time, we can, and the rest of us can fake it. Uh, that was fun. Really great to just hear, hear Robert sing <laughs> when he didn't know the music. That was just a priceless moment. Do we have that on video, I hope? Hey, let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. We are studying one of the most important things you could ever study in the Bible. No kidding. I mean, it's when we were in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, we're looking at how a person is found acceptable before God. This is the most important thing. If you get that right, everything else in your religion and everything else in your life flows out of it. And we've seen that it's so important that and has so many implications that it's going to take the apostle a while to qualify it properly to be sure that the folks he's talking to really get it. You notice that after he made his main point in chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, now let's just look at that, where he says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law no one will be justified. Then he goes on in the the latter part of chapter 2 and gives us a profound theological argument to buttress that statement, that claim. And then when we come to chapter 3 in the first five verses, remember, we saw that that he makes an experiential argument. And it has to do with your experience of God's power by the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit because you obeyed the law? Did you receive the Spirit because you believed? Which was it? Of course, everyone knows the answer. It's by faith. And so he's saying you begin by faith and you continue by faith. Sanctification is by faith. Now, it's not faith alone. Justification is faith alone. Sanctification is by faith in God and by our obedience. It's synergistic. Justification is not synergistic, it's monergistic, one energy. And he, so he makes an experiential argument. And then, as we saw last time, verses 6 through 14, he makes a, an historical argument. He says, well, let's go, back, let's go back in our own religious tradition. Let's go all the way back to Abraham uh, 2,000 years ago, and let's see what was true with him. Because we're the children of Abraham, Let's, let's look at what the story was with Abraham. He goes back to Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed, and it was credited, imputed to him as righteousness. So he says it was that way with Abraham all along. And then he says, now we're children of Abraham. And he's not just talking about Jewish people. This is astonishing. He's saying you Gentiles are now children of Abraham by faith. And so if it was true for Abraham, it's certainly true for us. Now, when we come to verses 15 through 25 that we're going to deal with today, this next paragraph in our NIV Bible, we're going to see that the apostle is going to address an argument that no doubt they were hearing in their day. And it's similar to some arguments we would hear in our day. But in in his day, the Judaizers, who remember are questioning Paul's authority and, and calling upon the Galatians to question his authority, They are also saying that, hey, we believe with Paul that Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation, but we just think it's important that you also keep 
the traditions that are in the Bible, biblical traditions uh, that we Jewish people have protected for centuries. And if you want to be one of God's people, if you want to be a child of Abraham, come on into the family of Abraham and act like a, a family member of Abraham. That was the argument they were making. And Paul now is saying, look, it's, it's only by faith. It's not faith plus anything else. Now, here would be their counter-argument. They would say, okay, Paul, we hear about what you're saying about Abraham. But, hey, we know our history. After Abraham, about 650 years later, was Moses. And Moses gave us the law. And so it's more recent. So Moses summarized Abraham and gave us the way of the law. And so now Moses has sort of trumped Abraham. So let's go back to Moses. Now that would be their argument. And it's important for us to enter a little theological history here. And that's exactly what Paul does for us in this section. And let's get it straight. What is the nature of the relationship between Abraham and Moses and our relationship to both of them? That's what he's tackling here. It's a, it's a little bit technical. But we're going to see that it has some practical implications that are important for us in our time. And... Um, then we'll continue that argument and see what role then Moses does have in our lives. Because Paul is saying that Moses doesn't have the role that you're saying that he has. Well, what role does he have? And it's important for us to know what role the Old Testament has in our lives today. Well, all that kind of frames up why Paul is going to discuss these things, beginning with verse 15. Let's take a look at it. Galatians 3.15. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. 
So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Okay, let's look at this in two sections, verses 15 through 18 and verses 19 through 25. And first of all, we learn in these first four verses that the law of God does not annul the promise of God. Now, the law has its place. We're going to see this. The law has its place in your life. But it does not annul the promise. And the first way in which Paul explains this in verses 15 and 16 is simply by practical application in their own time. And that is, God's will cannot be altered. And here's the argument he's using. He says, what if a covenant or uh, the word diatheke in the Greek, which is used here, translates a Hebrew word, berit, which is the word for covenant in the Old Testament. But the word, the Greek word, uh, diatheke, can either mean covenant, like in the Old Testament covenant, or in secular, in the secular realm, diatheke just simply meant a will. And which one Paul's talking about, we're not real sure. It could be he's using an intentional double entendre. He means both. And that's his whole point. He says, let's look at a covenant or a will. How does a will work? He says, the testator makes a will. And nobody can alter that will. The testator has the right to establish his will the way he wants to. And nobody else can alter it. And certainly when the testator dies, you can't alter it. But you spend, some of you have spent a good amount of time in your lawyer's office trying to figure out what your predecessor meant by what he said. The point is not to change what he said, but to figure out what he meant by it. Because what he said stands. And it has legal precedent. It was the same way in Greece and in Rome. Now, there in ancient Greece, even the testator couldn't change what he said. Once he spoke, that was it. We don't know if Paul's referring to an ancient tradition or the current secular Greek uh, uh, situation, but nonetheless, his point is the same, that we know what a testament or a will is like in secular society. He says, now let's just take that to Abraham. And he, he says that that if God, it's, what he's doing is making a, what we call an a fortiori argument. A fortiori in Latin just means to the stronger. So he's, he's showing the, I'm sorry, it means uh, away from the stronger. So if I prove the uh, stronger case, the weaker case will certainly be true. So he's saying, look, if we know that human beings are faithful in covenant, how much more will God be faithful when he is the testator, when he's the, the will maker, when he's the covenant maker. That's his argument in verse 15. So he's saying, let's take an example from everyday life. No one can set aside or add to a human berit, or I mean, a diatheke. No one can add to a human will or a human covenant that has been duly ratified. So it is in this case. And he says, the promises were spoken to Abraham. So here's the point he's making, that God's will, his promise to Abraham cannot be shaken. That you can't lay aside that promise. And it was a promise that he made to him. And it, it was a relationship with Abraham based on the work of God. Now, Moses' law 
has more to do with what we're supposed to do, doesn't it? Well, it's not altogether that way, but it certainly it's, uh, there are a lot of thou shalt nots in there. And if you read Stott's commentary on this, he, he was quoting someone else, I think it was Luther, who said that with Abraham, the nature of the covenant is God saying over and over again, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And in Moses' covenant, the case is that God is saying to you, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That's the difference in these two covenants. And the, the intellectual dialogue that's going on now is which one is, has precedence. And Paul is arguing for the, for, for the former, for the earlier, because it was ratified by God and therefore has precedence and cannot be reversed. Now, let's go back for just a moment. Keep your finger there in Galatians. But go back to Genesis 15 for just a moment. Let's, let's look at something. The language here that he uses is that in, in verse 15 he says, Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, or the word there would be ratified, so it is in this case. And this ratification is extremely important in Genesis 15 to understand the very nature of the Abrahamic covenant. Now you'll notice... Uh, In verse 4, of, this is page 37. In verse 4, uh, Abraham has wondered whether his estate uh, is going to be given to Eliezer of Damascus since he's going to remain childless. And, and the Lord says no. Uh, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here's the famous verse, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Then the Lord says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. See, this is the very nature of the Abrahamic covenant. God is saying, I'll make you great among the other nations. I'll give you a great name. I'll give you a great nation of sons and daughters. And I will give you a land. And I will bless you. And this is back to chapter 12. And all nations will be blessed through you. So I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. This is the very nature of the Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant of promise. And then verse 8, Abram says, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Now, this is a reasonable question. I mean, after all, when Abram was called out of Ur, he was 75 years old. He's older now. And he didn't end up having Isaac until he was 99. So he was being called upon to believe that he was going to have an heir. He's 99. Old Sarah is 90 when Isaac's born. Now, it takes a little faith to believe that's going to happen, gentlemen. I know you're not there yet. Uh, but <clears throat> when you do, you'll understand these verses. Abraham had a reasonable question. How can this be so? Doesn't make, seem to make any sense. Furthermore, when it comes to the land that God had promised, Abraham never owned anything except the plot, the cave where his wife was buried. That's the only land he ever owned, and yet he kept believing. Well, of course, the land came to his great nation, the nation of the children of Abraham. 
Uh, and they did one day have their land, but it was hundreds of years later. But Abraham believed. That's the remarkable thing about his belief. So Abraham's asking here a reasonable question. Sovereign Lord. Okay, Lord, you are sovereign. <laughs> you own the cattle on a thousand hills. I guess you can bring the... <laughs> the, 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 the New Testament says Abraham believed this because Abraham believed that God could raise the dead. I mean, including his own body. Raise the dead. You know, he was as good as dead. How is he going to have children? And so he had to believe in the resurrection to believe this promise. So he's saying, Sovereign Lord, uh, how could I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, and this is a very important section in Genesis, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, why was he doing this? Why was he going out and getting a bunch of animals? Why did God tell him to do that and then cut them in half? Well, here's why. Uh, we know because we've discovered in recent decades some ancient treaties, some ancient covenants in the secular world, uh, namely Hittites made covenants. And here's how they did it. This, this is their covenant form. There's the suzerain or sovereign king who makes covenant with his vassal kings. So if I'm the big cheese in Assyria, I've got Egypt reporting to me, I've got Israel reporting to me, I've got Persia reporting to me, I've got them all under my thumb. And I've got vassal kings in all those places, and they're my underlings. They're called kings, but they're vassal kings. They report to me. I'm the suzerain king. And I make a covenant with them. And the covenant I make with them is that uh, I'll protect you. We're going to have an alliance, a little NATO here, and I'm going to be the commander-in-chief. And if anybody attacks you, they attack all of us. And you will be protected. And I'll provide services for your roads. And I'll be sure that you have enough food for your people. And here's what you're going to do. You're not going to undermine me one bit. You're going to do everything I tell you to do. It's going to be yes, sir, and no, sir. You're going to pay tribute, taxes. And here's what they're going to be. And they're pretty heavy. And you're going to allow me to conscript uh, your sons for military service. Uh, so we got it clear? Yeah, okay. Now, let's make something really especially clear. If you violate this, it's not going to be fun for you. As a matter of fact, I'd like to demonstrate to you how little fun it's going to be. Let's take some animals and let's cut them in half. And you walk through those animals. It's a little ritual. It was a covenantal ritual. You walk through those animals. And just remember... If you violate the terms of this covenant, you're going to look like those animals when I get through with you. Now, that was a typical secular covenant form between a suzerain king and a vassal king. Now, Abram's a vassal king. God's the suzerain king. So they're going to have this little covenantal ceremony. God's making a deal with him. God's in charge. He says, okay, go get the animals. Here we go. I'm going to show you what happens if you disobey me. All right, you ready? Here we go. So verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. So God told him about the time in Egypt before, long before it ever happened. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. 
You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God is telling him hundreds of years before it happens that they will be enslaved in Egypt, they'll be delivered out of Egypt and go to Canaan and displace the Amorites. Now, look at verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Folks, that's a lot of land. Now notice what he was saying. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, it doesn't say, and Abram walked between the pieces. That's what you expect. Abram walked between the pieces. And they made a covenant. They made a deal. It was established. It was ratified. But notice how God ratified the Abrahamic covenant. He didn't send Abram through the pieces. He sent himself through the pieces. What does the the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch represent? It represents God who is a consuming fire. And the very symbol you'll see in the in our sanctuary of the Abrahamic covenant is this smoking fire pot and the blazing torch. It's the symbol of God Himself. God made it clear to Abram. Abram, let me tell you something. I'm giving you this warning. If you break this covenant, may I be split into pieces. It makes no sense. That's the reason that people think Calvary is foolish. That the cross is silly. Because no suzerain king destroys himself over a covenant. That's, this is where it's absolutely certain that Christ is going to die on the cross. Because we're the ones who break the covenant. And God does exactly what He said He was going to do. I'm going to spill my own blood. I'm going to go through the pieces when you break the covenant. That is how strong the Abrahamic covenant is. It was made on promise. Therefore, it's a very gracious covenant that all the provisions are made by Him and all the stipulations are against Himself. Now, if you look at the Mosaic covenant, it kind of reverses, doesn't it? Do this and you're going to die. Kind of like the Garden of Eden. Now, there's a sense in which both are true. We'll get to that later. But here you can see that, back now to Galatians, what Paul is saying, that just as one, no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly ratified or established, so it is in this case. So God's will cannot be altered. The covenant also clearly points directly to Christ. Look at what he's saying. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. So it has to do with Christ. This is very interesting. So when Abraham was promised a great nation, that nation is in Christ. When he was promised a seed, the great seed with a capital S, is Christ himself. And what Moses, I mean, what Paul is showing the Judaizers is that if you're going to understand Christ, you have to understand Abraham. It always interests me that in Bible translation efforts around the world, and there are hundreds, even thousands of them, 
oftentimes the, the translators will translate the New Testament first, and sometimes that's the only translation that gets done for 40 or 50 years. And I just have to say, although I'm very glad people have New Testaments, I'm thinking to myself, how do you understand that book without the Old Testament? I mean, look at our text today. If you didn't have an Old Testament, what sense would this make? How would you understand the gospel? How would you understand grace and God's promise to us without your Old Testament? That's the reason we study our Old Testament. That's the reason we keep reading it, trying to understand it. Now, it is more difficult to understand. It's another, you know, at least another 500 years before the New Testament. In some cases, it's 1,500 years before the New Testament. So you're going way further back in history, and the culture is further removed from us. It's not a Greco-Roman culture, as was the case in Paul's epistles. It is a Near Eastern culture, which is remote from us. And so it's very difficult to understand sometimes the meaning of the Old Testament. But gentlemen, we've got to keep working at it because the gospel is in the Old Testament and comes to its full expression in the New. And I don't think you can understand the New without the Old. Furthermore, people in the Old Testament were not saved by keeping the laws of the Old Testament. They were saved by the blood of Christ. You say, huh? Christ hadn't come yet. They were saved through faith in the promises of God and especially His promise to provide for their sins. I'll give you an example. Uh, Leave your finger there still in Galatians. I promise we'll come back again. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. And this would be page 1994 in the Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible. Hebrews chapter 9. And look in verse 15 where the writer of Hebrews says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And what inheritance is he talking about? He's talking about the Abrahamic inheritance. You see, the New Testament writers were very self-consciously tying Christ to the Abrahamic promises. He's the fulfillment of everything promised to Abraham. All those Old Testament promises given to Abraham come to us, believers, in Christ. That's the thrust of the New Testament. So we receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom, catch this, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Christ died to set them free for sins under the first covenant. His redemption is so great, it not only served in the present and moves to the forward to reach us, it goes historically and saves Moses and saves Abraham. So the blood of Jesus Christ is cosmic and eternal in its value. And so there's, in the Old Testament, you're really dealing with the same mode of salvation, justification by faith, through Jesus Christ alone. Now back to Galatians chapter 3. God's will cannot be altered. B, in verse 17, the promise came before the law. It's just merely a chronological point that he's making. He's saying the Abrahamic covenant in, in some sense takes precedent over the Mosaic covenant. Here's the way I think is the best way to understand it. The covenant is one covenant. God's will or His covenant with us 
is the same covenant. You can see it there in Hebrews 9. It's the work of Christ for sinners all throughout history since the fall in Eden. It begins with Genesis 3.15 in the fall at Eden when God says, Cursed be the serpent. And He says, Your seed will be at enmity with the woman's seed. And you will... Uh, he, he will crush your head. The seed will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So right there, right after the fall of Adam, God makes a proto-covenantal promise. We don't even have the word covenant until Genesis chapter 6. But it's proto, it's, it's, it's preliminary. He's already making a promise that the seed of the woman, namely Christ, will crush the head of the serpent. So we already have a promise given by God in Christ from the beginning. So there's the beginning. And then when you, when you get to Noah, you have the first usage of the word, berith, covenant. And you get to learn a little bit more. Well, he's not going to destroy the earth by, by flooding anymore. He's not going to show his wrath across the entire world by destruction by water anymore. Next time will be by fire. So he makes a covenant. When you see a rainbow in the skies, there's the covenant sign by which he promises that he'll preserve winter and fall and spring and summer and so on. He'll keep the order of the universe. Then you come to Abraham and he makes a promise that there's going to be a great nation which eventually is the church and the word church is used in the Old Testament. It's his assembly of people. He's going to create a great nation. That, and so what you have with the covenant, it just is continuing to open up It's the same covenant as we had in Genesis 3.15. Same covenant we had with Noah. But it's opening up and showing us more. Then we get to Moses, we get a little bit more. Here's how you're to walk before me. Here's the law. And then we get to Christ, or we get to David rather, and we have, oh, it's going to be a mighty kingdom. And there's going to be one who rules over us. And the son of David will be the great ruler. So we learn more about the Messiah through the Davidic covenant. I will establish my covenant with you and with your seed, he says to David, to, to rule and have a dynasty. Great. That tells us more about the covenant. Then we get with Christ. Oh, behold, that he is the very son of man and the son of God. Behold, he is the one who lays down his life for sinners and is raised on the third day. Behold, he's the one who's going to come back and with his physical, physical presence, he's going to transform the entire universe into a new heaven and a new earth. There's the fullness of the covenant, but it's the same covenant. And what Paul is arguing for is to say, you can't destroy Abraham, that aspect of the covenant, by arguing about your law. It all fits together. Let's stick with Abraham. You cannot reverse those promises. So the promise came before the law. What I mean is this, he says, the law introduced 430 years later. Now, don't worry about the 430. I've already told you there were about 650 years difference between Abraham and Moses. But 430, as Stott says in his commentary, is the amount of time that the Egyptians, I mean, the, the uh, Israelites were in Egypt. Or other commentators will say it's the amount of time between the promised Abraham, the last citation of it, to Jacob and the giving of the law in Sinai. That's 430 years. So either way, that, Paul means one or the two of those probably. He says 430 years. He's saying Abraham came before. Now, Thirdly, in verse 18, he shows that the inheritance can only be by law or by promise, not both. In other words, if the inheritance comes to us because we're good little boys, then it's not because it was promised. 
And if it's because it was promised, it's not because we were good little boys. Take your pick. And he says it depends on a promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. And this word grace here is very important. He's saying that Abraham, although he's the prototype of the faithful man, Abraham had to have God's grace. He was a sinner. And there are a couple of places that are very prominent about Abraham's sin. When Abram was 75 years old, whom had he been worshiping for 75 years? The moon god, the sun god. Look at all the names of his relatives in Genesis 11. They're all named after gods, planets, moon, sun. He was up thickly into paganism. 75 years of living like a pagan. We don't need to recite what he probably did, like some of us. And then even when he's given the promises of God, and obviously a converted man, and believes and goes and leaves his home where he had nicely retired at 75, and he starts traveling hundreds of miles over to Canaan, a land he had never seen, just based on faith. I had a dream last night. Oh, honey, says Sarah, you sure? Yeah, we've got to go. I mean, imagine the conversations they had. A man of faith. And yet what happens when they have a famine in Genesis 12? They have a famine and have to go to Egypt to get food. And, and Sarah, at 66 years of age, is apparently a really good-looking chick. I mean, I'd like to see that 66-year-old lady. But she was fabulous, and Abram was concerned that she was so good-looking that the Pharaoh would eliminate him to have her. So what did he do? He did the bold and courageous thing and confessed it right up front and laid his life down for her. Yeah, right. He lied. She's my sister. (laughs) And he gave her over to Pharaoh for his harem. So she became one of Pharaoh's mistresses. At 66, you do that to your wife. It better be by grace is all I can say. And it is. Paul says, but God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Not because Abraham was such an outstanding citizen, although he ended up being the father of the faith. And he he is a prototype of faith. But he's a prototype of faith from a dirty, rotten scoundrel like you and me. And so that's the reason it's so important to establish your relationship with God on the basis of His promise to you. I will, I will, I will, I will. And it doesn't depend upon your performance to every word of the law. Otherwise, you and Abraham together are cooked. All right, so the first point that Paul is making is the law of God does not annul the promise of God. Please. Secondly, Verses 19 through 25, this argument is more subtle but extremely important, and that is the law of God serves the promise of God. Now, the argument that probably, it seems, was being presented to Paul by the Judaizers went like this. Now, Paul, we're not saying you don't have to believe in Jesus. Some of them would even say, We're not saying that in order to be justified, 
it's not, we're not saying that it's based on anything other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're not saying that, Paul. Well, then what are you saying? Here's what they were saying, some of them. They were saying, okay, you're justified by Christ, but, there's always a but, which means they're going to qualify justification. But, in order really to be one of God's people, you have to take on the symbols that have always belonged to His ancient people. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the Sabbath in a Jewish way. You have to abide by the lifestyle of the Jewish person. Now, this is the more subtle argument. And Paul does not deal with this lightly. He takes it very seriously and considers it a threat to justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the reason for all the heat on this argument. And he's going to say, when you do that, when you say that there is a lifestyle issue that has to be added to justification by faith, you have obliterated justification by faith alone in Christ alone. For example, if you say, and some fundamentalists would say, you can't be a Christian and drink alcohol, you no longer believe in justification by faith alone. There were some in my day who said, you just can't be a good Christian young man with hair that long. Did we not hear this? We heard it. I mean, I know you young guys didn't hear this. We heard it. Absolute reversal of justification by faith alone. The more recent version about 20 years ago, I remember one of our old deacons, uh, look at Mountain Presbyterian Church. He said, you know, when I was younger, Father, I used to argue with you young men about your long hair. He said, now my grandchildren are coming. They got these rings, you know, in their ears. And I've already told them about what I'm going to do if they have a ring in their ear. I'm going to pull it off. <laughs> and it is funny. But what is that? It's a denial of justification by faith alone. You're adding some sort of custom. I know some fathers who believe that their daughters have to marry a particular type of person. I know some white people who think their children ought to marry white people. I know some black people who think that their children ought to marry black people. I have nothing against either one of those things unless you're saying that that's important for a moral, a blessed, or a Christian life. It's an utter denial of justification by faith alone. It has nothing to do with being a good Christian young man or a good Christian young lady. I know some people who think, if my children don't go to college and don't get a certain type of job, well, I've just failed. All you've done is deny your understanding of the necessity for justification by faith alone in Christ alone for a person's blessedness in life. You add all kinds of stuff all the time. You won't say it out loud like the Judaizers would. But we act like it. And the reason for racism, frankly, here and anywhere else, is because the church doesn't understand justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, where we stand together as one people, the children of Abraham. That's the problem. So whether it's adding on customs in the church or customs in your culture or customs in your noggin, Paul is saying, you can't do that. The law cannot be added. Lifestyle 
that's not in the Scriptures cannot be added to the lifestyle of the Christian. So then he's asking the question, what, is the, what was the purpose of the law? And let's look at verse 19a. The law exposes sin. The promise destroys it. He says, what then was the purpose of the law? He says, okay, you're, I'm telling you that the law cannot be added. You cannot require circumcision. You cannot require your little customs. You cannot require your little old wives' tales. You cannot add your racism to it. You cannot add any of your customs to it then what is the purpose of the Old Testament law? Because the Judaizers were quite aware that Jesus said, I did not come to abolish abolish the law, but to establish it, to fulfill it. And he, he says, not the least stroke of a pen will pass away. The Judaizers were very aware that Jesus said that. So Paul's got something, he's got to defend this now. And he's saying, what was the purpose of the law? And he shows that the law exposes sin, the promise destroys it. So the purpose of the law is this. There, there's a famous threefold purpose of the law. I want to recite that for a moment. But let's look at the most important purpose of the law in the Old Testament. Most important purpose of the law is to reveal God's character. It always is. It's the most important thing of all the aspects of the Bible. It tells us who God is. When God says you shall not steal, He's telling you He doesn't steal. When He tells you that... Uh, you should obey authority. He's showing you that in the Trinity there's an authority. And the Son of God obeys the Father. He's showing you everything about Himself. He's showing you His holiness. That's the most important thing about the law. That's the reason we don't want to lose the law. But in terms of our experience, what are the three purposes of the law? Number one, it is to lead us to Christ. Because the law shows us how desperately wicked we are and why we need a Savior. So the law exposes sin. It doesn't deal with it. It doesn't remove it. That's the problem with the law. It doesn't remove the sin, but it exposes it, and it needs to be exposed. The second purpose of the law is that it provides a foundation for society. It's called the civil purpose of the law. So that if I want to know how to build laws for the state, if I'm a believer, I can look at the Scriptures and take the general equity the general sense of justice that's in the Bible, and I can bring it to bear in the civil life. And that's what we've been doing in the West for hundreds of years. And we're finding difficulty with it because as we have a diverse religious environment, it's more difficult to make the argument for that. But it's one of God's purposes. He wants justice and peace everywhere. And the way to do that is to study what He's given us already for laws for the body politic in the Old Testament take the general equity out of those laws and translate it into contemporary language and justice and peace here in our own day. And the third purpose of the law is called the normative or the moral use of the law. That means how ought I to live as a believer? So the law, first of all, condemns me. It exposes my sin. It tells me how ugly I am. It shows me how in ten big categories of my life I have violated the pleasure of God over and over again, externally and internally in my heart. So it becomes my enemy. It condemns me. After I'm converted and out from under that condemnation, so the, the law can no longer condemn me. Nobody can condemn me. Even the law of God that's perfect can't condemn me because Christ took the condemnation on Himself as my substitute, which is what we studied last time. He was cursed on the tree. He was cursed by the law. 
He was cursed by my lawlessness. He was cursed by God who is exercising justice against my sin. So I cannot be condemned because God is just and He does not require two payments for the same sin. And one payment's already been made in full. So I can't be condemned any longer by the law. Now the law becomes my friend. The third use of the law becomes very important to me. Now the law becomes the love manual. Here's how you love God. Here's what pleases Him. I'm in love with Him. I'm grateful to Him for delivering me from the curse of the law. Now I want to know what pleases Him. And even though I don't do it perfectly, I can repentantly and sincerely move in this direction and live this lifestyle, the lifestyle of of a godly person. So the law becomes my friend. That's the reason that David says, Thy law, O Lord, I, I love. I love your precepts. He says it's better to me than the honey even the honeycomb itself. It's better than gold to me, he says. He's in love with the law. Why? Because it's from his Father. And it's the way in which he draws near to the Father and experiences the blessing of communion with him. So those are the three purposes of the law under the overarching purpose of revealing God's holiness. Paul is saying that's what the law does. It was added because of transgressions until the seed, Christ to whom the promise referred had come. So he says, unlike what you're saying, that the law is the sumum bonum, that the law is the highest good, that the law is what we use to achieve a certain status with God, he says just the opposite. The law was added because of sin, not because of your righteousness, but because of your sin. You got it all wrong. It's important. It's part of the covenantal revelation going all the way back to the Garden of Eden through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses and David to Christ. It's part of that unfolding flower of the covenant of God through history. But it was its specific purpose. The thrust of the Mosaic covenant was to reveal how desperately we needed God. And is it not clear that by the time the Mosaic covenant was given, we were in desperate sin. We were sinning all over the place. And we needed, a, we needed categories to understand our own brokenness and sin and rebellion. And the ten great words, the ten commandments gave us those categories. So that's the purpose of the law. The law exposes sin, the promise destroys it. Now, secondly, in verse 20, he talks about the mediator. And this is a complicated verse. We're not going to spend any, really any time on it. But the law was mediated and the promise was direct. He says, look, if you want to compare them, the law came through angels. And the law came through Moses. The people waited at the base of the mountain. They didn't want to go up the mountain because they'd be destroyed because of their sin. So they sent Moses and angels were sent from God to Moses. He had all this mediation. Well, what about Abraham? God spoke directly to him. And Paul is just saying, I'm, hey, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I mean, you know. The, the promise, he's trying to show how important it is to put the promissory aspects of the gospel ahead of the legal aspects of the gospel, and they're there. Law-keeping is important, but it's subsidiary to the promise. Thirdly, C, the law could never supplant the promise. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. So... Um, The law is not opposed to the promises and it doesn't eliminate the promises. D, the law held us for salvation. This is the last point we want to make in the last five minutes. 
And it leads us into the entire text for next time. It's a very important understanding of the nature of the law. He says in verse 22, But the Scripture declares, verse 22, The Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So we were held as prisoners. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, keep your finger there. Go back to Romans 3. And you'll remember, Paul goes through an argument in Romans to show how the, the Greek pagan is in sin, how the Jewish covenantal keeper is in sin, and how the ethical person is in sin. And no matter what tradition you come from, all across the Greco-Roman world, he draws this conclusion in verse 10. He says, As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless, so on and so on, citing these verses from the Psalms. He says, Do you get it? There's nobody who can stand on their performance. Nobody can stand on their record. And he concludes it with verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. There you have it. Nobody, the religious person, the perfect Jewish covenantal kid, the Greek ethicist, and certainly not the pagan worshiper, nobody can declare that they have a record they can stand on and make an argument before God on the basis of that record. We're all guilty of sin, and law the law enables us to see it. So that's what the law is doing. It's holding us or restraining us like we were in prison. Now, in verses 23 and 24, you get a further explication of it. He says, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So, number one, before faith, the law restrained us. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. I just have to say, you know, in, in our trying to share the gospel with other people around us, it's very important that at some point along the way, as we're given opportunity, we explain the problem. And the problem with most evangelism today is that people don't know why you're even talking to them. I mean, if you're happy with your religion, fine. I mean, I'm kind of happy with my no religion. So why do you want me to be a co-religionist with you? What's the difference? I'm already happy. And they have a reason to say that because we haven't shown them why they should be very unhappy. They should be very unhappy because they're sinners in the sight of God. And God destroys sinners. So they should be very unhappy. Now, they may not believe this, but it's our duty to convey it. And we don't convey it because you can mess up relationships with a message like that. And it's our own fearfulness. But part of the communication, I mean, if you'll look in the early pages of Acts, what got Stephen stoned? He said, the blood of this man is on your hands. What got Peter imprisoned? And only the angels could get him out. He said, this one that you crucified, he said, you crucified him. 
God has made both Lord and Christ. So along with the exaltation of Christ, he also explained the guilt that was upon the people. We have to find out a socially acceptable, nice, kind way to get the truth across. Francis Schaeffer was once asked, if you had an hour on a train with someone to explain the gospel, how would you do it? He said, I'd take the first 55 minutes on the law. And it only take me five minutes to explain the grace of the gospel. Now, maybe he's a little bit out of whack there, but I think he's onto something. People don't even know. Why, why, why do we need the gospel? It's because we haven't used the law properly. It is meant to imprison, to imprison us from thinking that we can justify ourselves, to imprison us to realize we have no escape based on our own performance. So we are held in custody, A, locked up until faith should be revealed, and B, we're trained by a tutor. Now this is where the grace of the law comes in. Not only are we held in and imprisoned, but we're led along by a tutor. Now in the Greek world, a tutor was usually a slave who would take responsibility not only to educate but to discipline the children in the home. And he was not known to be real nice and fuzzy. They were usually a little bit, a little bit on the harsh side, especially with the boys. So you would have a, a slave or a servant in your household who would have been, you know, instead of having a, a, a kind mother who would walk you to school, this tutor would walk you to school. And if you got off the path, he'd beat you over the head and make you go to school and then wait on you and take you home. And he'd tell you everything you're doing wrong. And that's what tutors did. They kind of reared the children of that generation. And what Paul is saying, that's what the law is. It beats you up, you know, tutors you along. And where does it take you? The school of Christ. And the law will beat you up until you get there. And it's meant to. And it had that purpose in our lives. Lastly, number two, after faith we were released. Now that faith has come, he says in verse 25, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. We'll get to that next week. What does it mean to be released from prison and to now be majority age and no longer have a tutor? What does that mean? Well, we'll see. That's what the promise of Abraham through Christ is all about. That's the experience of being a converted man is that you're no longer under the supervision of the law. You're under the supervision of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see how that all works next time. That's the argument that's being made. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw the law out. Keep it in your life. It's necessary, even for the believer, to have the role of the law in our lives. We'll talk more about that as time goes on. But don't confuse that with the pure grace of justification in the gospel that comes all the way from Abraham. God says, I will, I will, I will. And he can't, His word cannot be broken. Let us pray. Father, uh, we thank You for these more technical aspects of our faith, because they build up our confidence. And we know that we belong to you, and there's nothing, not even the arguments of the most sophisticated people, that can remove it. And so we leave here as children of Abraham, sons of Abraham, and more importantly, your sons, brothers of Jesus Christ. And with confidence, we go into this world and pray that we may live as people who truly love you and know that we belong to you and have one ambition, which is to seek you and to know you and to make you known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, gents.